Welcome, fellow adventurer. Your device is tuned to Renegade Files, the podcast you always knew was out there. Together, we explore the paranormal, the unsolved, and the worlds of high strangeness. I'm your guide, Lex Gordon, soaring the solar winds of the internet from the camouflaged compound known as the Jungle Villa Outpost and located deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files Episode 40, Folklore in the Information Age. This is a really fun topic. On this episode, we dive deep to explore a relevant and critical question. How has the world of communication technology altered the social process of folklore? This is important because As a society, our legends, folklore, and myths define our hopes and imagination and warn us of peril. Tribal cultures employed folklore to educate the young, to explain very real dangers, and to keep valuable traditions and knowledge alive. The exercise of learning about and passing along folklore is so deeply ingrained in our processes of communication that we couldn't stop doing it if we tried. By and large, this is a good thing. But what happens when the modes and tools we use to communicate evolve light years beyond campfire tales and those late-night one-on-one conversations? How has our modern information tech driven and influenced our legends, our beliefs, and our relationships to the fantastical? And what are the implications of an internet that creates its own myths, its own folklore, and its own digital mythology? Come with me now, and together we will take a ride on the wild side into the bizarre confluence of internet ideas and vision quest realms where ancient archetypes become the digitized deities of folklore in the information age. Folklore in the information Part 1. Then and Now Back when I was a kid, we didn't have no newfangled internet with all of your fancy information and evidence. Back then, you learned about the weird stuff on the street corner, where you stood with your bike between your legs and listened to the worldly wisdom of your best friend's older brother, who had seen a Bigfoot on a hunting trip with his uncles. Teenagers camped without a tent with a bag of potato chips, a package of hot dogs, a six-pack stolen from the garage refrigerator, and they saw UFOs with their own eyes. And before those days, our ancestors huddled around pinion wood fires and heard the oldest among them spin tales about skinwalkers, yetis, mermaids, fairies, and leprechauns. The mysterious world was a real part of the everyday world, 
and those who knew the legends and stories were taken seriously because the folklore conveyed real warnings for your safety and told of true treasure maps to undiscovered riches. As an elementary school kid, a construction worker building a house in my neighborhood told my friend and I that there was a skunk ape in the marshy land south of our streets. And at that time, that land was several hundred acres along the waterfront. Not huge compared to the American Northwest expanses, but big for the uncharted tropics of the day. And the skunk ape has also fallen into the info age spin because the skunk ape has been lumped in with Bigfoot and Sasquatch, so he's now said to be as large. But the Seminoles and Calusas of Florida describe the skunk ape as much smaller, maybe even the size of an adult chimpanzee if standing upright. A small group of animals that size may have been able to live in the land south of me as a kid. In fact, I just attended the Great Florida Bigfoot Conference in Ocala, Florida, and presenter Dr. Jeff Meldrum, one of many presenters, explained how primates, through adaptation, have been shown to survive in small numbers and in very small areas. Maybe there is a tribe of relic hominids that do live in the wilderness of Florida. There are many people up and down the coastlines, but there are also vast areas of unpopulated locations in Florida. It's tropical, and that means that fruits like bananas, mangoes, citrus, and papayas, as well as hundreds of edible plants and flowers and fruits that people generally don't know about, grow in the wild places here. Small primates can absolutely live in Florida. Ask an old Miami local what happened when the monkey jungle got hit by a hurricane back in the old days. Folklore of old served to connect us to the past and warn us of real dangers, and the consistency of the stories was a valuable part of their function. The details of the legends were foundational to the tales. Stories were passed on person to person, over and over. And while they surely grew in complexity and embellishment, this was a process that took place over generations. Today, our information moves largely between people online, through social media, blog posts, Twitter feeds, internet articles, and of course, our favorite, podcasts. But this situation isn't simply the electronic storing and trading of the same old stories. Search engine algorithms reward originality. That is, if one story on a subject is copied, is identical to another, and both are published online, then those two stories are both placed lower in the search engine results when someone looks up that topic using Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever search engine. Another story on the same subject, which is worded in different ways than any other version online, is read by the search engine software as being more original and therefore as having a greater authority. So that story is placed higher up in the search rankings. Of course, 
This is with all other things being equal, like say, numbers of keywords, how those words are capitalized, and a hundred other variables. But regardless, originality ranks higher than duplicate content when it comes to search engine results. What happens then is that this mechanism encourages originality in online content. No one wants their article to be on the third page of Google. How many people ever even click on results below the top five on page one? Very few. This has a particularly interesting effect when it comes to folklore and other subjects that lean toward colorful and dramatic description. The originality reward system of the search engines encourages faster and faster tiers of exaggeration. And it isn't just the inclination and incentives to rewrite and sensationalize old stories that affects our historical folklore when it comes to the online world. We have entered a time when it is virtually impossible, without a great deal of work, to know with any amount of certainty if something we see or read online is true or false. Deep fake technology and techniques have advanced to the point where you can make a video of almost anyone doing and saying almost anything. So it becomes impossible to know if something is fake or not, and that's when we're dealing with known entities like public personalities, actors, or politicians. This problem becomes even more exaggerated when we enter the realms of folklore. Art Bell once observed that we had crossed into a place where no photo could ever prove the existence of a UFO, because if it's blurry and unintelligible, then people discount it, and if it's clear and perfect, people say it's just Photoshop. He said that a decade or more ago at this point. Art Bell is a legend. Let's go over some examples so we can get a better picture of why this is important for us as a society to talk about. When we speak of folklore, one heavy hitter in the genre is cryptids. The mythological beast who steps across the threshold of imagination to leave physical footprints on our trails and to become something more than a pure fairy tale. This is the foundation of traditional folklore. The golden age of American cryptids was from the 1950s through the 1970s. This, we know in hindsight, occurred for two main reasons. First, this was a time when the country experienced the proliferation and adoption of the automobile. This coincided with the development of an extensive interstate highway system. The result was that more people were out and about. Affordable cars and reliable motorcycles also made it possible for younger people to travel further. This younger, more adventurous set took to camping, hiking, and exploring the forests, national parks, and wild spaces. As a result, sightings of cryptids and strange creatures grew like crazy. UFOs, too. 
the second contributing factor to this golden age of American cryptids, the 50s through the 70s, was that, at the time, there was no 24-7, 500-channel TV or endless internet. You went outside for your recreation. It was this combination of factors, no endless TV or internet, affordable personal transportation, and a system of well-maintained highways across the nation that allowed people to get outdoors and explore the natural world, and as a result, sightings of cryptids and unexplained things boomed. And even then, as modern as the times felt, folklore that is, the passing along of these legendary sightings, took place mostly by word of mouth and through conversations. People talked, shared pictures, and maybe caught a Bigfoot special on TV once a year. And speaking of which, the undisputed king of the cryptids is Bigfoot. We explored Bigfoot in depth in Renegade Files episode 14, Check it out and share it with your pals. As I mentioned earlier, I recently attended the Great Florida Bigfoot Conference. That trip resulted in a Patreon bonus episode all about not only the conference, but about my adventures exploring the St. John's River by kayak looking for not just the elusive skunk ape, but exploring Morrison's Island, which is said to be haunted by a Native American Indian chief who can be seen patrolling the shores at night. I stayed the weekend of the conference in Astor, Florida, which is also the home of a few other spooky paranormal situations. The Bigfoot Conference, Bigfoot Hunting, and Astor Paranormal Investigation bonus episode is a combination of audio and video, and you can see it all on Patreon. Nice. Let's look into how the Bigfoot legend fits into our premise that folklore is now heavily influenced by the information age. The Sasquatch legend comes to us from very far back, and every native culture has stories of such a beast. From the gentle people of the forest in the American Northwest to the wild and dangerous yetis of Nepal, Bigfoot sightings span the globe. For generations, these stories persisted and grew, and the first peoples of almost every continent find this tale weaving through their folklore. The stories remind us that the Earth is sacred, wild, and unique in the cosmos. The tribal Sasquatch stories are considered to be about very real creatures. Many stories are about real-life encounters with elders, older times when Bigfoot was more known to the everyday lives of the people. And they speak of the sacred places that are still wild enough for this large cryptid to exist. But with the advent of the modern communication age, Bigfoot has moved beyond the trusted counsels of the shaman and into the iPhone video cameras of the hiker, the hunter, and the teenage trail rider. A search for Bigfoot on YouTube will yield hundreds of shaky videos of shadowy bipeds ducking behind trees and cresting distant ridges. 
some of these encounters could be genuine, and if we're to put any stock in the legends of those who lived here first, it is possible that at least some of these videos show real cryptids, relic hominids, or an undiscovered species. But many are most assuredly hoaxes and pranks. How do we know which is which? That's the issue here. It's one of the issues. In those days, we defined as the golden age of cryptids, you relied on the credibility of the messenger as much as the veracity of their evidence. We analyzed and debated footprint castings and films, yes, but those things were rare when compared to the distant or fleeting sighting. And they still are today. The famous Patterson-Gimlin film was as good as it gets. Arguably, it remains so. Do your own search for Bigfoot videos on your favorite video site and you'll see what I mean. You could spend all day sifting them and still have no more evidence than you did when you started. The same thing goes for other folklore subjects. Mermaids. Fairies. So how does this situation impact folklore? In my opinion, the worst part of it is that it waters it down. It relegates it to the realm of the cheap hoax. It ruins the deep messages of traditional folklore and it muddies the waters of any genuine sighting or evidence. And this is regarding something that crosses from folklore into real life, like a Bigfoot sighting. A young kid who hears about Bigfoot from some TV show, like many of us did in the 70s or the 80s, can now jump on Instagram or YouTube and do a search for Bigfoot and find that same shockingly long catalog of backyard Bigfoots, and the whole thing becomes an internet joke. It's not the end of the world, but it just makes it harder for someone, particularly someone younger who has a genuine interest in a mythological or folklore subject, to find anything worthwhile. Part of this situation is the result of the functionality of the online space. Anyone can portray themselves as an expert. We have endlessly editable wikis or user-edited encyclopedias, and there is a lack of accountability that comes from anonymity. This brings us to the work of Christopher Balzano and specifically his podcast, Tripping on Legends, and his episode called How Puckwudgies Got Wikied. You may recall that I mentioned Christopher Balzano and Tripping on Legends in the Renegade Files Patreon bonus episode about the UFO conference, which we also published on the regular podcast feed. And at the time, I said I wanted to do an episode based on this topic of folklore and how it has been affected by communication tech, so here we are. To be perfectly transparent, the overall concept for this episode came from ideas Christopher shared in that episode, so I'm going to put a link to his website so you can find all of his cool stuff. And be sure to listen to the Tripping on Legends episode, How Puckwudgies Got Wikied, to go deeper into that specific example of the info age corruption of folklore, if you're into it. But right now, Let's just look briefly at the main things 
the Tripping on Legends podcast points out about that subject. In the How Puck Watchies Got Wicked TOL episode 16, Christopher Balzano and Natalie Christ tell stories of three modern Puckwudgie sightings. One, a girl Chris knew who startled a Puckwudgie ahead on a walking trail. And two others whose Puckwudgie encounters share striking similarities to both the first girl's tale and to each other's. Listen to their episode if you want to hear the details, and he does a great job conveying the pivotal moments, but here's the gist. And before I go on, some people may not know what a puckwudgie is. A puckwudgie is... well, we'll get to that part. These sightings, spanning from the late 90s to the early 2000s, happened in daylight, in remote areas, two on hiking trails, and one in a somewhat remote parking lot, None of the witnesses knew of Puckwudgies or were seeking out anything paranormal. They were doing mundane things in quiet locations and they seemed to have stumbled upon some unrecognizable creature. When they described the beings, short, covered in hair, more like a hairy person than another ape, loincloths or roughly clothed, snout-like noses but human-like features, alert, aware, furtive. When Christopher Balzano heard the stories, he dove into researching such sightings and he discovered a tradition going back to the Wampanoag, who are native peoples of the Northeast American woodlands, so the New England areas. This is the folklore of the Pukwudgie which has a few spellings and also exists under other names and in other cultures, but much of what these modern fellow explorers say they startled unexpectedly matches exactly with the attributes of the Pukwudgies described by ancient lore from these same areas. So here we have a really cool situation where everyday people out doing something casual outdoors encounter something unexpected and their description of it precisely match the folklore tales of similar creatures from those same areas. The modern witnesses encountered the Pukwudgies in similar ways that encounters of old are described. A researcher looks into the folklore and finds that the creatures share a rich heritage and various relationships with humankind from friendly to mischievous to downright treacherous. One part in the Tripping on Legend podcast that blew me away was the reason the people who saw the Puckwudgies didn't speak to anyone about their sightings for many years. They each told Chris, independently mind you, that a short time after their initial chance Puckwudgie encounters, they saw the same Puckwudgies again, not out on some wooded trail, but around their homes not overtly sitting on the porch, but like a glimpse between the hedges or a peek around a corner, as if to threaten or let the person know that the Puckwudgie they saw knows where they live. So what Christopher discovered in his research and sense is that as the modern story of Puckwudgie sightings started to appear online, the stories quickly evolved in ways that were when compared to the original legends, either fully made up 
exaggerated, or incorrect. For example, one author had published articles about some of these Pukwaji encounters, and at some point, one of the people involved died. One of the people who had seen one of these Pukwajis. So out of respect for that person, this author removed the blog post that told their story and posted the reasons why on her blog. People remember that a death was involved, and they begin to associate Pukwajis with violence and danger to the people who see them, and that gets wrapped into some of the online reference material on the subject. In other words, the story of an unrelated death attaches itself to the Pukwaji story, and it becomes a part of its folklore, even though the deaths that we're talking about had nothing to do with the Pukwaji sighting itself. And we can argue that the opposite has happened with the leprechaun. Irish folklore paints a much more serious, dangerous, and often sinister trickster in the ancient stories of these folk, the leprechaun. Yet modern pub culture has given us a fun-loving, cheery, rotund, rich uncle who spills beer when hugging you, but sticks a gold coin into your shirt pocket for luck. Old tales describe Pukwudgies as powerful magicians. They evolved from harmless, if tricky, shapeshifters into dangerous troublemakers, and finally into fierce foes. Is there a true danger in straying so far from the early folklore? Or is folklore, by definition, continually changing, for better or for worse? Another example from Tripping on Legends is that once the Wampanoag peoples became Christianized, or among those of them who did, the Pukwudgies were turned into versions of or messengers from the Christian Satan. Tripping on Legends links are in the show notes. Check them out. That's no official endorsement or paid promotion. I just like the show. I met Christopher at the UFO conference. He was really cool. And I have to tell another story Balzano tells on that episode. Through his research and writing, Chris became the Pukwudgie expert early on. So he was invited by a producer to be a part of the cable TV show Paranormal State. He was too far away to do the interview on camera, so he did it with one person over the phone, and it was recorded with his permission that they used the audio in the TV show about a family who thought they had Pukwudgies. Chris tells his co-host Natalie that in that episode of the TV show, the scene is made to look like a group in a conference room talking to him live as he answers the group's questions through a speakerphone on a conference table and it's edited in such a way as to look like a live conversation, but he had only ever answered those questions from a list read by one person over the phone. He found this out while watching the episode. The show goes on to somehow construe that if the family being plagued by the Pukwudgies planted strawberries, it could scare the cryptid away. This is a huge leap from one old tale that told about Pukwudgies stealing strawberry cake, which makes me think that planting strawberries could do the opposite of repelling them, but it sounded so good 
that the producers of the show made it sound like Chris Balzano was suggesting, or at least agreeing, that strawberries would repel a puckwudgie. So they planted some, and according to the end of this TV show, the family lived happily ever after and puckwudgie free because the strawberries worked. Before they put the strawberry idea words into his mouth for the show, they initially asked Chris in the interview, how do you get rid of a puckwudgie? He says he told them that in modern times, they really aren't that much of a hassle, so if anything, it's probably best to ignore them. But when the show aired, he listened to them ask him if strawberries would appease the puckwudgie. Then Chris heard his own edited and rearranged words say, yes, plant a strawberry plant. A completely fabricated answer that he never gave. As a result, there are now online articles that mention strawberries as a way to rid your property of a pesky puckwudgie. I know it's crazy, but is it really a good idea to plant a known attractant when you're trying to repel a creature that the native cultures in your area called a fierce foe? Is this a serious question of personal safety? I'd say that at the very least, it's just a bad idea in general. This is a really good example of how folklore in the information age evolves drastically and rapidly to envelop not really the facts or testimonies of the modern sightings, but the exaggeration and misinterpretation of the most sensational pieces of the newest stories. It's the reason we need deep research alternative media projects like Renegade Files if I do say so myself like those conspiracy guys, Uncharted X, Coast to Coast AM in its finest hours, especially in the Art Bell days, Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis can be pretty good, hundreds of others. Shows like these dig deep enough to find the ways folklore origin stories coincide or conflict with current and recent experiences that seem to be of the same things. I fully believe that this is a valuable part of exploring the paranormal or the unexplained. Moving on from Puckwudgies. Part 2. The Internet's Own Folklore In addition to facilitating the changes in traditional folklore we've gone over so far, the internet has resulted in totally new categories within the social folklore project. In the same way as that writing and the printing press evolved to generate new instances and levels of folklore, so too has the connectivity, instant publishing, and wide reach of the internet created its own myths and legends. You could spend ages finding internet legends and modern info-age folklore. Let's look at just a few to see if they illustrate any pitfalls that have befell their more traditional folklore counterparts. One internet legend concerns the hackers of Anonymous. You know this is a subject I'm fond of, I'm not going to go super deep into it. But the reality is that this was at its height a loose collective of like-minded security and free speech activists and was only ever decentralized to probably one of the purest examples of decentralization that we've ever seen. 
So the idea of Anonymous being some genius, rude boy, CIA counterpart and a well-managed hacking collective has never been, strictly speaking, true. People's ideas of what Anonymous is is largely based on one TV news story from years ago. It's true that people using that moniker have done many of the things they are credited for doing. Probably the vast majority are true. But who and what Anonymous actually is becomes entangled in the folklore surrounding what people say or write about the brand, so to speak, over the years. Check out Renegade Files Episode 5, Anonymous and the Birth of Hacktivist Culture. Wow, I can't believe that was Episode 5 at this point. Cool. It's a favorite of mine. Other internet legends could be said to be the Slender Man and all the creepy pasta type stories that get written on Reddit then passed around and reworked on paranormal blogs and that's the world of mixing mad conjecture with crumbs of citation and barely recalled connections and those places get freaking nuts real fast. There are whole genres of folklore that exist in those types of frameworks and you can get lost going through them. The crazy part is you do find, and I'd say pretty often, jewels of information that can help real research and lead you to stories or evidence that actually is valuable. And there can be good and very possibly true posts among the more fictionalized boredom of creative people online but you have to cultivate the skills of going through the schlock and identifying the juice and it can be super fun but it's not for everyone luckily there are still books we can read and people write good ones every day george knapp has distilled tons of research into books on things like the skinwalkers in instances like that he's done a lot of the work for us you still have to take those stories and evidence with a critical eye, but at least a book's information is arrested to some degree. It's static. People can't just edit it to match a new tantalizing sighting. In that way, a published book becomes a snapshot of the current folklore. It recorded the folklore as we understood things when it was written. It's good that we have books, but in the end, it's just more information to add to the rest. I think internet or modern digital information folklore suffers most from this information overload because it's looked upon as being okay to change digital information. At least there's still some reverence for the oldest tales and presenting them intact is part of respecting the first people and the native culture legends. Doing that can help us so much. For example, we can speculate and research and apply modern knowledge and technology to the UFO experience until we are dizzy. But the calm, matter-of-fact descriptions of the helpful star people of Native American folklore relaxes us. It reminds us that we are also on a planet. So if you're looking from a distant galaxy, we are the star people. In this way, we are all related. The star people are not our enemy. We are them. 
since we're on the subject, UFOs and the extraterrestrial hypothesis have become fully entrenched as modern internet folklore. That subject evolves so fast that we now just constantly analyze the latest events, compare them to past legends, and try to filter it all through the breadcrumbs leaked to us by the intelligence community and the military over the years and currently. Almost any single story can be endlessly debated, but taken as a whole, they portray something complex, compelling, and mysterious. And many UFO stories are amazing on their own. The powers that be actually exist in a large part because we expect them to be in control and to have some answers to some relevant things. When there isn't a simple answer, or any answer, them saying they don't know erodes some of their authority, their power. They do it some, but they usually end with, but we're still looking into it. But people are compelled to learn, to figure things out, and to seek answers. Folklore fills this role in many complex ways, and it does more than that. How did that lake get there? A giant struck his fist there and made the lake. This is the old school folklore we got in school back in the day. That casual folklore that ridicules native cultures as truly believing that's how lakes are made and their giants are cast as imaginary. But the actual stories of genuine folklore are far more intricate and they connect us to the earth the seasons, the stars, and the natural world so revered by the pagans and the wisdom traditions. This intricacy keeps trying to reinsert itself into folklore narratives, but as we've seen, it can be so quickly reduced, altered, deleted, or made up that the old importance in the subtlety of the stories gets confused. Part of the independent researcher's job is to find the deeper information and to keep it alive for that subject. Harvard University offers a course called Internet Folklore and Digital Storytelling. Here is the course description from their website. Quote, Exploring the wild worldwide web of informal vernacular culture being created transmitted and adapted by online communities, this course examines the powers, potentials, and peculiarities of internet folklore in relationship to community building, political engagement, social change, and everyday negotiations of individual and group identity. On our digital journey, we encounter viral videos, meme warriors, urban legends, occult folk beliefs, disinformation campaigns, and viral challenges while examining connections between contemporary online culture and ancient storytelling traditions. What new folk groups, storytelling genres, and political potentialities are arising as a result of online engagement? What are the creative, destructive, and ambivalent capacities of online participatory culture? 
and how are they being harnessed in projects of future making? Unquote. Crystal clear. To give you an idea of what a Harvard degree might cost you, that one class is listed at $3,500. On the cheaper and very likely more fun end of internet legends, we have the legend of the duct-taped gamer. This story kicks off the section of things that are not really folklore being corrupted by the internet, but internet legends in their own rights. There are many. As far as they go, this is one of the most excellent. On March 29th, 2003, a group of friends had a LAN party in a basement in Mason, Michigan. It would be fair to call these guys geeks or nerds, and that's using those terms with the highest amount of respect, and I doubt any of these people involved would have any issues with those labels. This is one of those instances where a single photo spread like wildfire across the internet and spawned entire message boards full of questions and rumors and, well, internet folklore. So these several guys were in a basement where they used a LAN system, that's local area network, to all play a video game with each other using a bunch of desktop computers. This was essentially guys doing what gamers now do over the internet. They just made their own interconnected machines to play multiple players at once. So at this event, there was precious little space with every inch being taken up by gamers and desktop computers. So as kind of a joke, they duct taped one of the guys to a beam on the basement ceiling so he could play the game on a computer resting on a stand without him taking up a chair and a desk. They took a picture of him up there and the rest is internet folklore history. People said he was a kidnapped prisoner, that he was going for a world record, People say that he's still up there today. <laughs> he's not. Some of these guys involved actually registered ducttapedgamer.com and have made a documentary movie called Internet Legends Duct Taped Gamer. It was supposed to release a few years ago, but all I can find are trailers. It looks pretty funny. Within the last year, they were still commenting that they were working on it. I hope they get it done and out. Another creepy and equally weird internet legend comes in the form of the Lost Bart's Dead episode of The Simpsons. This connects nicely with a Renegade Files episode that has been in development for almost as long as the Duct Taped Gamer documentary. Not really. And that is our co-hosted episode on the predictive programming of The Simpsons. We are working on it. But many internet legends focus on some lost footage or lost TV episode that predicted something sinister or that had some other issue surrounding it. The Bart's Dead Simpson lost episode is exactly this. As the internet legend goes, there was a dark episode in the first season of The Simpsons that the Fox network has spent years trying to cover up and deny. The legend tells us that the show's creator, Matt Groening, became terrified of this dark episode. The episode depicted Bart being sucked from a broken passenger jet window, showed a cemetery at the end when the family goes to mourn for the dead Bart Simpson. 
In the cemetery, we see headstones of many of the past and, at that time, future Simpsons guest characters. These are people in real life who became cartoon guests on the show. Michael Jackson, George Harrison, dozens more. The creator became frightened when he realized that the headstones in this episode were actually predicting the deaths and causes of death of all of these guest characters. And at a conference, he gave an internet link to the person telling this story, telling this internet legend. The link crashed that person's computer, but he was able to offload the download to a compact disc and it was the episode. The story ends by saying that the dates of death listed for all of the Simpson guest hosts or guest characters who have yet to die are the same date. This implies some global catastrophe. This date isn't given, which adds to the weight of this legend. So the question as to whether or not there really is a lost Simpson episode where Bart dies and the headstones in the cemetery and one of the scenes predict people's deaths is just unknown. We're not sure. Anytime that people are asked about it, they get real edgy and fussy and downright mad. So no headway has been gained by asking anyone at Fox or the creators or anyone involved with the Simpson show because supposedly Anytime you ask them about it, they bristle and get mad and run you off. Now, that may also be another part of the internet legend. We just don't know. Another internet legend is the creepy pasta stories of the Slender Man. These stories were originally created by a user of the internet forum called Something Awful. The user was Eric Knudsen. Something Awful is like a combination of Reddit and 4chan if everyone was either sarcastic and truly funny or demented and negative. It can be a seriously funny time drain, but use it with caution. Anyway, this something awful user, Eric Knudsen, created the Slenderman legend that is of a featureless, tall, slim man who would appear like in the background somewhere in photos of kids that would soon go missing or otherwise meet with tragedy. And most of what Eric Knudsen posted were Photoshop versions of the Slender Man in pictures of kids who have gone missing or something. I'm not exactly sure. The stories caught on though, and people made their own stories, hundreds of them. And unfortunately, some real world violence resulted. Things like kids attacking their peers to appease the Slender Man or someone trying to kill someone to prove that the Slender Man exists. And then what happens is stories like that become their own legends. Some of them made up, some of them true, I guess. We have seen things like this before when the media unduly influences the misdeeds of impressionable minds. You may recall a rash of suicides that were blamed on rock lyrics in the 80s, that kind of thing. Another weird internet legend is the expressionless woman. The expressionless woman legend is based on a single photo of what looks like a combination mannequin and plastic surgery gone wrong face of a lady being put into a hospital bed. The story is the woman showed up at a hospital and that she was something between a robot and a 
changeling human and that everyone who came into contact with her met with a sticky end. We also have the stories of the black-eyed kids. Many of the early stories of these creeps come from genuine sources and it seems like the black-eyed kids inhabit the same realm as the men in black. But once the stories get out there, the imagery and characteristics of cold-eyed, creepy, potentially dangerous kids is too cool to ignore, so a million stories arise, and the BEKs, as they are now known, become their own internet legend. I love the original story of the black-eyed kids, so let's look into that real quick. Brian Bethel, a writer who was living in Abilene, Texas, was driving a few miles from his apartment to pay his internet service bill. He pulled over into a movie theater parking lot to write out the check. This was 1998. The parking lot was empty, and the movie, Mortal Kombat, was about halfway over. Suddenly, he was startled by a knock on his car window, and he looked to see two kids he thought were about 10 years old, boys in hoodies and slouchy jeans. One never spoke, and the other Bethel calls the spokesman. The spokesman said they had come to see the movie, but they had forgotten their money, and they wanted him to give them a ride home to get it. A few things struck Bethel as odd, like the fact that the movie was already halfway over at that point. Also, that the boy who spoke referred to home as their mother's house. Kids that age would almost certainly say our house. Also, they said things like, Come on, mister, you have to let us into your car. You have to invite us in. We won't hurt you. We don't have a gun or anything. It won't take long. Just take us to our mother's house so we can get the money and go see the film. At this point, Bethel made eye contact with both kids and realized they had coal black eyes. No whites of their eyes, no irises, just their entire eye solid black. He peeled out, and as he did, he heard one of the boys scream, You have to let us in. When he looked in his rearview mirror, the kids had vanished. This story is unique among internet legends because Brian Bethel is a real person, and he says this really happened. It's weird. Like the men in black, other stories of the black-eyed kids tell us they are always a bit out of place. Like their clothes look like they are much older than you would expect. Like the kids are trying to fit into this time but not quite getting it right. They're also said to have gotten out of or into old cars. Like 1965 Lincolns that look brand new or stuff like that. Also like the men in black, the BEKs speak in strange ways that aren't wholly incorrect but just a bit off. Like the one kid saying, we have to go to our mother's house. This is something a grown man would say after having his own house for years. Ten-year-olds that live at home don't call their house their mother's house. Maybe if their parents are divorced, they do. The story is still weird. Moving on. Be careful should you choose to visit the website blindmaiden.com. Most of the time, the URL just leads to a blank page, but internet legend has it that if you happen to visit this website at the exact right times, 
you will see a blind woman. She will suddenly jump out of the computer screen, or I guess now the smartphone screen, maybe she's real little, and into the real world and attack the onlooker, gouge their eyes out, take their photos, and add those images of their horrified reactions to her collection of spine-tingling screenshots. I think I'll pass. Another good one is the story of the Wikipedia page of Anora Petrova. Anora Petrova was a young figure skater who was about to attend high school when she stumbled upon her own Wikipedia page. She hadn't made it, no one she knew had made it. The page seemed to tell of her as an adult, and as she grew up and became a competition figure skater, the mysterious Wikipedia page about her seemed to be predicting her victories. When she tried to edit the page to change one future loss to a win, the edited paragraph suddenly read, Anora Petrova is greedy and will get what she deserves. Words to that effect. In the following competition tryouts, Anora was injured when her best friend and competitor's skate blade broke, flew off, and cut Anora's face. The judges accused Anora of sabotaging the skate blade, and they disqualified her from the competition. Crazy. One of the creepiest internet images ever shows, in black and white of course, a bandaged, lipless, sharp-toothed humanoid grinning in a rickety iron hospital bed of yesteryear. The story goes that this photo is from a 1940s Russian mad scientist experiment where five people were locked in a room with beds and water and food, but the room was fed with an experimental gas that kept the subjects from being able to sleep for 15 days straight. The story details the horrific conditions of the remaining subjects when the scientists opened the doors 15 days later. Luckily, the story is just another internet legend, and the photo was actually a photoshopped Halloween decoration. There are hundreds of these stories, maybe thousands, but I'll wrap things up with one of my favorites. It's the video game called Polybius. P-O-L-Y-B-I-U-S. As the story goes, in 1981, an arcade cabinet video game called Polybius was the main attraction in a select few arcades in Portland, Oregon. Locals say that men in black would come collect data from Polybius every week, and people now believe that the government was using this arcade game to test behavior modification algorithms. Players said the game would cause nausea, dizziness, stress, and even suicidal thoughts. Although no one actually knows the specific programming of the original Polybius game, gamers have created and continue to create simulations of the Polybius video game based on stories and accounts of what people say the game was like. In 2012, an arcade-themed bar in Brooklyn called Barcade even jokingly put up a Polybius cabinet for Halloween. There are some pictures that supposedly showed the original Polybius cabinet game, 
but there are also fakes, and vetting them is hard. This is one of those internet legends that could very possibly be true, and the fact that we just don't know makes it even more interesting. As a side note, a Polybius video game can be seen next to Bart in an abandoned video arcade in the Simpsons episode called Please Homer Don't Hammer Em. Weird. So in conclusion, let's revisit our original question. How has the world of modern communication technology changed the social process of folklore? This is important because as a society, our legends, folklore, and myths define our hopes, our imaginations, and warn us of peril. Tribal cultures employed folklore to educate the young, to explain very real dangers, and to keep valuable traditions and knowledge alive. It's safe to say that the advent of endless sources of information, and that information includes the written word, video, audio, photos, memes, and many hybrids of all of these, causes at the least confusion and at the worst information overload. At the same time, the fact that the access to publish, edit, chime in, retell, and comment on all of this information creates even more confusion and complexity of narrative is absolutely true. We are in the midst of a shift among media resources. Legacy media like network and cable TV is falling behind and they are clamoring to stay relevant. When I accidentally saw some cable TV at my uncle's house on Easter, I heard one of the news people begging the audience to not trust the internet, not trust Facebook, but please trust us. I seriously laughed out loud. Please, please, please trust us, the newsman said. Even though we spin everything we say to our own political agenda, but don't trust the internet. It's dangerous. All three of the major so-called award shows, the Academy Awards or Oscars, the Grammys, and the Emmys have experienced declining viewership to the point where fewer people watch those shows now than did in 1980. The Oscars alone are down from highs around 40 million viewers in the 90s down to 20 million or so now, depending on what graph you look at. That's quite a dip. And as such, the advertising costs for something like the Oscars is through the roof. Network and cable news viewership is down too, way down. My friend's daughter, who is in her 20s, told me she has never watched so much as one second of television news or one minute of a single award show. I can almost safely say that she never will. The point is that these legacy media companies are struggling. As their viewership declines, they're forced to raise advertising costs to maintain the lifestyles of their overpaid hosts, their corporate officers, and to finance the general overhead of a huge television network. 
But it doesn't take a marketing expert to understand that paying more money to advertise to a smaller audience is bad business. We are watching, in real time, the desperation of the legacy media companies to remain relevant as they slowly implode before our eyes. These giant legacy media companies will very likely go the way of giant shopping malls. They become irrelevant. The point is that people are getting their news, information, and entertainment in different ways. And this massive audience shift takes place through the same channels that have become the arenas of not only our modern digital legends, but are also the domains for retelling our most ancient folklore. Because of this, anytime an internet urban legend gets something wrong or results in some tragedy, the mainstream media delights in spin, spin, spinning that to incredible heights of conjecture and woe. Why? Because it makes their point that the internet can't be trusted. They are the only source for safe information and that these poor, deluded internet kids are killing each other over urban legends made worse by the proliferation of the online model of user-driven content and you cannot trust user-driven content. That is the position of the dying mainstream media. This may be true in some instances. Overall, we have to be careful anytime we consume information that is posted as being anything more than pure entertainment. But that's the truth with the network news as well. The question of, is this true or false, real or fake, is one that comes up constantly online. But the reality is that question should come up all the time. Snopes was once a website that tried to untangle the internet myths from reality, but that company has been sold and hired by Facebook, and they are admittedly, as we have seen in court proceedings, an opinion-focused information police mechanism used by Facebook to curtail free speech on that platform and to assert clear political agenda into Facebook discussions. And both the Facebook and Snope combination of fact-checking credibility is, in my opinion, a joke at this point. So we find ourselves in a world where the people who are telling us what is fake online are not really giving us facts, but their own opinions, in order to influence what we think or believe. The actions we take. So now, we have the debunkers being debunked, And who knows what's real or not? Mix this into centuries-old folklore, and you see the potential pitfalls. The old folklore has value. These stories warn us of real dangers in the physical world. They teach us how to relate to each other. They teach us the fantastic parts of this amazing phenomenon that we call existence. The fact that anything at all is happening and that we're aware of it is a pure miracle in the truest sense of the word. For me, some of the coolest moments in paranormal investigations come when you discover that a modern paranormal experience perfectly parallels a traditional folklore tale. 
like the people on Skinwalker Ranch seeing things we learn are a part of the Native American legends from that very same area, or sightings of UFOs in the high desert that share similarities to the stories of the star people told by the Hopi. The story of a hiker in the woods of New England who sees a tiny scroungy man on the trail ahead of her. She tells her friend who's into folklore, and he finds out that that area she was in was known to be the home of what the Wampanoag tribes call the Pukwudgie. When she describes what she saw, it perfectly matches what they describe a Pukwudgie as being and looking like. The girl who saw the thing had never heard of this creature from the native folklore, but there it was in front of her. Stories like these are the best of the legendary world. The internet spreads them, and the modern accessibility and speed of publishing creates leaps of exaggeration, which are simultaneously favored by the search engines, which reward originality, so you have a rumor mill of hyperspeed that creates legends upon legends until we're all dizzy from the craziness. But in the end, I think more knowledge is a good thing. We as humans will always add to stories and embellish for effect, and the realms of folklore and legend will never be immune to this. I think we should try to teach traditional folklore to kids and include the sources and histories of those folklore subjects and try to not impose our modern ideas upon those legends. Take for example the legend of Devil's Tower, also known as Bear Lodge to over a dozen Northern Plains tribes. Some of the tribes have tried, unsuccessfully so far, to get the name changed from Devil's Tower back to Bear Lodge, since the site is sacred and naming it after the Christian devil is sensational and inconsiderate of that site's actual history. Anyway, the folklore tells us that several young girls of the Crow tribe were saved by the rising rock as a giant bear clawed the sides and created the strange vertical striations we see on the rock monument today. In other words, the very earth itself pushed the rock up to save the girls. Other area tribes, in addition to the crow, have the same or a similar legend. In this legend, the girls were lifted so high to the heavens that they became the star people of the Pleiades star system and their sons and daughters returned to Earth to become the modern native peoples of that area. So this is much more than a creative idea about how a rock tower got stripes on its sides. And yet, when our park system and schools teach this legend to our kids, that's the story we give them. It's the story we print on infographics behind plexiglass at the roadside park buildings on the way to this natural formation. This abbreviation of the folklore is the mundane, materialistic interpretation of the legend and it leaves out the origin story of an entire nation of people and possibly the origin story of humans on earth in general. Folklore will always evolve and change but it's up to all of us to dig deep sometimes so we can more fully understand the energies, ideas, and morals of those who came before us. We should respect the legends created in a time 
when there were far fewer distractions from the natural world. And we should delight in retelling the stories that seem to linger, that have places in our own human stories for good reasons, and that should remain as long as we remain. Thank you so much for coming along to explore the realms of folklore in the information age. Join the other Renegade Files agents on Patreon to get bonus episodes, the Dark Intel Files research, links, articles, and videos collected in the production of every published episode, as well as each episode's transcript and background music MP3s. We also have behind-the-scenes videos of Renegade Files adventures and tours of the Jungle Villa Outpost, my periodic posting of weird internet finds, and you also get the chance to comment on the episodes and interact with me and the other RFA agents there. So tap the Patreon link in the show notes or on our website at therenegadefiles.com to check it out for free, and I will see you in there. Thank you so much to all of you who are already RFA agents on Patreon. The show exists and is always free of corporate ads because of you. It means a lot to me to have you in the Renegade Files crew. Thank you. Until our next excursion into the wilds of high strangeness, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, rock and roll child.